Hey, I'm Alicia Bake. I'm Jen Greenfield. And I'm Jen Tifoni. VO Booth Besties listen to the questions you have. We find pros in the know to help you learn. And connect with our amazing VO community. Welcome, Welcome to, to VO, VO Booth, Booth Besties. Besties. everyone to VO Booth Besties. We're here to help working voice actors get your most important okay. questions by industry pros who know. Each week we have a new topic and a guest speaker who is an expert on that topic. To stay up to date on our upcoming schedule, you'll want to be part of our weekly email list. Swing by boothbesties.com and shoot us a message with your email and we'll get you added. And if you haven't joined our VO Booth Besties Facebook group, we'd love it if you would join us there too. All right, so as you can see, this is a new platform for us to use. Uh, we're hopeful that it will only be uphill from here uh, and a little bit better than Clubhouse. So bear with us as we navigate this today. As usual, if you have a question as the interview goes on, we don't specifically have a chat, but what we do have is the comment section. So on your LinkedIn, if you're whether you're on a desktop or even your phone, you can reduce or what do you call it, minimize the, um, our faces, right? That the live part, you can minimize it and then pop over to the actual post that is um, the VO Booth Besties and Maria Pendolino post. And you can add comments over there and we can chat. So that's the best we can do for now. Thanks a lot, LinkedIn. Uh, and now let's meet our guest. Over to you, A.B., all right. Maria Pendolino is an award-winning voice actor working across commercials, animation, video games, industrial narration, documentary narration, live announce, imaging, and more. She's also the founder of Millennial VoiceOver, Blue Wave VoiceOver, and one of the founding steering committee members of the Disabled Voice Actors Database. She's been acting since the tender age of 11, dragging her parents along to community theater auditions for The Sound of Music, and scream-singing Phantom of the Opera in her childhood basement. I can relate. Maria trained and performed in musical theater, television, and film before finding her home behind the mic. She has also done stand-up comedy. As a teacher, Maria has presented at conferences and taught classes on negotiation strategies for voice actors, and she loves helping voice actors think like a business. In her spare time, Maria enjoys cooking with her husband, Eric, playing with her four rescue cats, and watching every derivation... Der Is that how you say that word? every derivation of the Below the Deck franchise on Bravo. She also serves on the advisory board of the National Association of Voice Actors, the board of directors of Alleyway Theater in Buffalo, New York, and is active with the National Association of Women Business Owners. That is, that is a lot, Maria. Over to you, JT. <laughs> hey, Maria. <laughs> yeah, it really makes it sound like I don't know how to enjoy any free time, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, as I recall, you and I met like six or seven years ago, and I had questions about rates and union status, and I sent you a message on Facebook, and you sent me a Zoom link and said, ask me whatever you want to know. And I think every time I've seen you on social media since then, it's been the same thing. You're just supporting other voice talent and sharing your experience, and I just want you to know how much we appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I believe very strongly in the moniker that a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think if we're all working, it's good for all of us. And um, I just kind of love the idea that 
you know, as we make it up the ladder of life, I'm mixing metaphors now with like home improvements <laughs> and boats, but, um, you know, sometimes you reach your arm down and help somebody up a few rungs and then they come up and maybe they help you up a few rungs or they bring the next person up. And I think, um, you know, sharing information and being open and honest with things that are going well or things that are a challenge, it only kind of helps improve the industry and the environment for everyone. So I'm, I'm glad to do it. And I uh, like to, you know, present or teach classes and webinars when I have, you know, capacity to do so or coaching and things like that. Um, it's been, it's been a wild couple of years, you know, I think with the um, pandemic and suddenly everyone realizing that home studios were like a great thing to have. Um, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a crazy three years of, um, you know, sharing information and working and just trying to find time to do anything besides those two things. <laughs> right. So we're going to jump right into rates. Um, AB, you want to get us started? Absolutely. I I would love to know, Maria, your thoughts on how we got to a place where we use the GBAA rate guide as the non-union standard for rates. Do you know when this transition happened? Like, Because now it's like, oh, just check the GBAA rate guide. Like, when did that transition happen and why do we, why did we set that up as the industry standard? I don't exactly know the exact date it was published, but I think it became the industry standard because it's the only thing that exists, right? It's the only true rate guide that was created by voice actors for voice actors. And in addition to voice actors, the GVAA, from what I understand, also you know, sent out rate surveys to folks like agents and managers and producers and ad agency contacts. So they really compiled it from information um, provided by people who were in the trenches every day doing the thing. Um, and I think as many folks know who work in the non-union space, it's the wild, wild west. You know, there is no governing body. There are no collectively bargained contracts. Um, and there really wasn't a place where you could go for a reference. There are some rate guides published here and there on some online casting sites or some online casting sites will prompt you, you know, what they suggest is an appropriate rate for something, but that may not be based in any kind of fact or may not be based in anything that's necessarily in the best interest of the artist. So I think that the GVAA rate guide really became the industry standard because, because it was clear that it was set up to both support and benefit the voice actors as a resource. You know, the Global Voice Acting Academy website is a website for voice actors. They offer training and webinars and classes and resources. So I think immediately when the rate guide got published, that gave voice actors a feeling like this is a resource for me. You know, it wasn't made for someone else. It wasn't, while it wasn't designed for the hiring community, it's a it's a benefit to the people who hire voice actors, but it didn't place them in the center of the transaction. It put the voice actor in the center and said, this is what, this is what we feel based on information we've compiled is fair for voice actors. And I think that kind of ethos is what gave everyone the confidence to use it. Um, and how it became the kind of gold standard of ways to at least have a starting point for conversations when you're approached by a client who tells you that they have no budget, which of course is a lie. They absolutely have a budget, but whether or not they want to share it with you is a different story. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's a resource that I have probably open in my Chrome tabs 
um, you know, 29 days out of 30 in a month. It's it's open and available for me to glance at. Same. When I type in G in my search, it doesn't bring up Google. It brings up the GVA rate guide, right? Like, um, so the word got out to talent, right? Like we got it out there, but how do we get it to talent seekers? Is it, it just still seems like a lot of people go GV. I don't know what you're talking about. Like even, even uh, people who should know. So this may be a controversial opinion, but I don't think the GVA rate guide is for voice seekers. I think it's for voice actors. And the reason I feel that way is because it's extremely complicated as a rate guide when you consider how many genres they cover. So if you are a voice seeker who only works on explainer videos, the sections like television broadcast, digital broadcast, telephone and IVR, all of that is going to be very confusing to you because it's not your language. So I actually think the power of the GVA rate guide is not for voice seekers as a primary. I think it's for talents and for talents to use as a way to formulate quotes and build, um, you know, custom quotes and information for clients that have asked for a rate for a particular project. And then I think it can also be used as a supplemental validation of a quote. So if you send a client a quote and they're like, oh, I had no idea that would cost $2,500. I was thinking more like $250. When you come back with your explanation of why the services that you are quoting cost what you've quoted and you're kind of justifying what quote you've put on paper, you can use the link to the GVAA rate guide and say, you know, here's a rate guide that's accepted as kind of the industry standard in my industry. And, you know, they have some additional information. So I think it can be used as like, almost like you citing your sources, right? When you're sending something out and saying like, here's here's how I, I got to this number. It didn't come out of thin air. But I personally, as a talent, uh, I do not send the GVA rate guide to my clients and say, here's a rate guide, figure out what you want to charge for this project or what you want me to charge for this project. Um, I think its power is in informing the voice actors and us being able to use it as we're quoting versus just sending it to the clients and telling them that it's their job to educate themselves. Um, happy, <laughs> happy to have folks disagree with me on that particular approach, but I would rather, I would rather control the conversation. You know, I would rather be able to explain to a client why I charge what I charge, the values of my services, and then I can use it as supporting documentation if I need to. Oh my goodness. I like, okay, everyone, please, please tell me you're taking notes because this is, this is it right here. Like I, earlier in my career, I would try with someone would say, oh, well, how much is it going to be for X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, well, I don't know all the details here. Let me just send you a link to the rate guide and you can, then you have the freedom to, to play around and figure out what works best for you. Right. They never come back after that. They're like, no, mm -mm, you just sent me way too much information. The overwhelm hits and they're going to go for easy. Clients want easy. They don't want to figure out what their rate is going to be. They want you to tell them. And so um, love, I love everything you just said. So I think also like if you think of like, if you think of yourself as a small business, right? If you compare us to like a brick and mortar small business, like a bakery, right? If you walked into a bakery and you said, how much is a dozen cupcakes? And the person handed you a sheet that yeah. explained how much flour was, how much frosting was, how much the cupcake papers are what their cost of labor is, how much they have to pay for rent, and all of those things. And obviously, this example is extreme to show, but it it under it helps you understand how many different things might go into 
creating the price for a commercial that's going to run on national television, an e-learning course that's going to require, you know, a lot of editing and file splitting, um, a project that may have, you know, the need for several pickup sessions to be budgeted because of what they know about their end client and how many opinions they have. All of those little things go into how you formulate your rate. And not all of those things are written out clearly in plain language, basically, on the GVA rate guide, even though they may be part of the equation that goes into creating those rates. So when somebody walks into a bakery and they say, how much does a dozen cupcakes cost? They expect the person behind the counter to say, a dozen cupcakes cost $29 or whatever that is. And they might ask, oh, I wasn't expecting it to be that much. And they could be like, well, you know, these are handcrafted cupcakes. You know, we take the time to frost them individually. We don't use any machinery, whatever. And it's a simple explanation of how the rate is what it is. We can behave very similarly. And we know that we have all of this detail to back us up. But a lot of times when a customer comes to you and they say, what is your rate for X? They expect you to be able to reply quite simply, my rate for X is this. And of course, you can ask follow-up questions. A lot of times people come into our inboxes and they don't give us enough information to quote, right? Oh, it's a web video. Great. I have (laughs) 17 follow-up questions about how you're going to use that web video, right? Um, You can ask follow-up questions. And I don't think that is annoying to a potential client. But if you cannot get to giving them a number within probably one email exchange, I agree with you. I think they're going to move to a different option that they would think is easier. Yeah. Absolutely. I love the cupcake analogy. It gives us an aspect of confidence that we're coming into negotiation knowing that what our value is and how to convey that effectively to our clients. Um, Now, my question for you is, is there sometimes when I go on the GBA rate guide and I'm pricing something, it feels a little high and I and I hesitate to offer, you know, this as a price. And are we are we beginning to price ourselves out of the market to some degree? Because I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. So let's say we go to the the gravy for the brain rate guide, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with as well. It's priced very differently, right? They they focus more on views, which is kind of where things are starting to head. But the GBAA rate guide is based a lot on broadcast, and that's kind of going away. So how do you feel like the market is shifting and changing, I guess, is what I'm getting at? And is there a place where rates are going to come down or are we going to keep trying to pull them up? And are we going to end up pricing ourselves to the point where people are just going to go to Fiverr and AI because they're like, well, yeah, that's great that you want $350 for this web use only explainer video, but I can get it for $65 over here. What, What do you have to say to people who have that fear? We live in a world where you can buy a t-shirt at Walmart for $3.95. In the same world that we live in, you can buy a t-shirt at Bergdorf Goodman that was made by Versace for $395. And it's the same white t-shirt. And maybe Versace is using, you know, viscose in the cotton and it feels a little bit softer. But at the end of the day, when you're walking down the street, two people wearing the t-shirts, one is wearing a white t-shirt and the other one is wearing a white t-shirt. We live in a free market. The people who are most interested in speed and cost. Those are the people who are more likely to eventually make their way to Fiverr or eventually make their way to using a AI or text-to-speech voice engine for what they need, because eventually it will be good enough for those particular needs. Now, those are not the clients that I'm going after. 
if speed and price are the two things that are most important to you, then you are not my client. My clients are interested in quality and collaboration. And those are the types of clients that I go after because those are the people that I want to work with. I would rather do one job that pays me $1,000 than 10 jobs that pay me $100. And that is a place that I can be at because of how hard I've worked to build my career. There may be people listening who are at the very beginning of your career who think 10 jobs for $100 each sounds awesome. And that's totally fine. That's totally fine. And that's totally valid. I did a lot of jobs for $50, $75, $100 when I first started my career. Maybe because I didn't know that some jobs would pay better, or maybe it was because doing the phone system for a dentist in Miami sounded like a really exciting way to make $75. So I did it, you know, and I don't go after those jobs today. I don't have time or capacity to do it. And that's a high class problem. And I'm, I'm proud to have that problem because I've built my career to a place where I don't need to do the dentist in Miami voicemail for $75. I think the rate environment will continue to shape and change. We identify the voiceover industry as an industry, but truthfully, we are freelancers and service providers who interact with people in all sorts of industries. So when it comes to the folks that work in the traditional media sphere as we know it, the world with casting directors, agents, managers, advertising agencies, production companies, the people who are kind of still very much rooted in the historical production system, those rates will not erode as quickly as the direct service rates. So I am a person who wants to hire another person. And I go to Google to determine how I'm going to do that. And I end up on any number of online casting sites or peer-to-peer sites, whatever you want to call it. They just they have a need and they go out to find the person to fulfill that need. Those are the clients that I think it's always potentially difficult to justify where your rate is coming from if they have absolutely no frame of reference. And these are the clients that will typically use, you know, phrases like, oh, it's only 17 words. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, I don't charge for commercials based on how many words are in the commercial. Or it's only going to take you 15 minutes yeah, I'm not billing you for the 15 minutes. (laughs) I'm billing you for the service that I'm providing. Just because I can do it in 15 minutes and I'm good at my job doesn't mean that it's cheaper to hire me, right? So those are all the things that we're thinking of as we're responding to these emails from various people who enter our periphery. Um, Your point about the difference in the way that Gravy for the Brain um, shows their rates versus how the GVA shows their rates. GVA uses kind of what we would traditionally use in marketing speak, which is the local, regional, and national breakdown. Local meaning it's airing in one singular market, like Buffalo. Regional meaning it's airing in a market that covers a region. For instance, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia region around the capital. That's regional, right? Or national. It's it's across the entire country or the majority of the country. The gravy for the brain rates line up similarly to that. They just use numbers of impressions, which that is the language that digital marketers speak. Digital marketers may work on projects that are geo-targeted to a specific region, but most likely they are paying for a particular amount of advertising and going after a certain number of impressions. So if you look at under 100,000 impressions, that kind of lines up to what we'd consider local 
um, 1 million to 10 million impressions, that lines up to what we would consider regional. Above 10 million impressions is when we start to talk about it being more like a national advertising piece. So their rates are quite similar, but how they break them down is different. I do find that when you're specifically speaking to clients about things that are going to be on the internet, the impressions language is the language they speak a lot more than local, regional, national. So that can be really helpful. I love that you spell that out that way. I don't think I've heard anybody else compare the numbers because the impressions can be kind of overwhelming. Like, what does, well, what is 10, what does 100,000 impressions equal out to? And um, that's really great. Thank you for that. Uh, JT, do you want to pop on and ask a few? Sure. Um, we get questions from newer talent um, a lot about how to read the guides and accurately quote. And we've got so many new acronyms now. Um, the new media and uh, streaming and OTT and OLV, and it, they just get completely lost. Can you tell us what some of those new things mean and what categories we're looking at to be able to accurately quote for them? For sure. So when we're talking about the, the first question you want to ask a client if they haven't spelled it out for you is, is this a piece of paid advertising? Meaning, are you or your end client spending money to put this in front of people's ears or eyes, right? So when something is not paid advertising, the phrasing we use is that it is organic or native content. Uh, people use the phrase non-broadcast, but non-broadcast in itself does not automatically mean that it's not a paid ad. It just means it won't be broadcast on television. So the first question you have to really get a firm answer to is, is this a piece of paid advertising or not? So if it is a piece of paid advertising, it is an ad, then the question is, where is that ad going to run? So the, the kind of gold standard, highest rate, most traditional media is broadcast television. That is traditionally known as TV that comes into your house. It used to be like, you know, over the antenna, but now even that is a digital transmission as well. But it's the TV that is kind of the the first uh, the first pass. Then you have cable TV, which is usually looped together with broadcast, even though it's not technically broadcast. But yes, cable and broadcast are usually looped together from a rate perspective, and they are typically the highest rates. Then we move to how people actually consume TV today. So when we talk about the majority of Gen Z, millennials, young Gen X, the cord cutting generations, the majority of those people are consuming live television through other means than cable or over the air antenna. And that's where we come into all of these acronyms. So you have OTT, which stands for over the top, and that covers any of your internet-based television delivery systems. That could be Sling TV, Pluto TV, um, Hulu Live TV, YouTube TV, any of these internet-based apps that allow you to watch television programming live and synchronous when it's being aired. That also includes, includes connected TV. So that's when Spectrum or Xfinity or other providers are actually providing a digital box that allows you to get TV, and you're not actually plugged into a coaxial cable to get that delivered to you. Um, that also includes addressable TV. Addressable TV is when a specific ad is being played to a specific person in a specific household because they have that kind of data and demographics to be able to get it directly to you. Those categories 
CTV, OTT, addressable TV, all of that falls under the digital broadcast section of the GVA rate guide. So these are ads that are made for the internet that will not be delivered through broadcast or cable television. Um, OLV stands for online video, and that's typically what we would consider a pre-roll ad or a mid-roll ad or some type of ad that is going to play in the middle or beginning of a video that is hosted online. So if you are watching YouTube videos and you do not have a paid YouTube premium account, when you get ads delivered to you, either at the start of the video or midway through the video where the person who posted the video has monetized it to accept ads on their content, that is where we have online video or OLV ads. Like I said, they can be pre-roll, mid-roll, whatever. That also is part of the digital broadcast section of the GVA rate guide. The final section of kind of the internet paid ad deliverable is social media. So ads that will be shown on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat. And the key differential is if they are using boosting or posting these as ads, meaning that the posts, the videos, whatever, will be delivered to people who do not follow those accounts, right? So if you follow Tide, you're going to see the content they post. If you don't follow Tide, then Tide has to pay money to Instagram or whatever social media platform to try and get their post in front of your eyes. And that's how it becomes a paid ad versus just an organic or native post where they're just sharing it to their followers. Their followers may or may not see it, and then it just becomes a piece of historical content that lives way down their grid, whatever. The difference between a post that's native and organic, it just sits there. The people who see it are those who follow them or people who choose to seek it out. If it's a boosted or promoted post, then it runs as an ad. It's being delivered to people who do not follow them. People don't have the choice to not see it because it's played for them. That's when we're charging different rates because it's paid advertising. Have I confused everyone now? <laughs> <laughs> no, you've actually clarified quite a bit. Thank you very much. So then we get back to the difference between the GBAA and what you and Alicia were talking about with the gravy for the brain with the impressions. So if we're talking about social media, gravy for the brain is actually probably our more accurate and the thing that those people are going to understand better. Yeah, I think the impressions can be really helpful. And also just thinking about like who they're trying to target. So one piece of advertising that I think gets really overlooked is business to business or B2B advertising. So when someone says, I have a piece of software and I want to sell it to HR directors, they're not going to advertise the HR software on television to a general consumer because nine out of 10 people watching television are not their targeted customer. So those people do super, super specific and targeted advertising. So one way that the impressions can really be helpful is if a customer tells you, oh, you know, I'm planning on, you know, marketing this nationally. And you're like, oh, here are the national rates. And they're like, oh, but this isn't a consumer product. So I'm actually going to be going after a very, very small audience. So then you can say, oh, okay, great. Then I'm going to give you my rate quote for the up to 100,000 impressions because that's actually the size of the audience and the type of thing you're going after. Those 100,000 impressions, those people could be located anywhere. That could be national, that could be worldwide, but they're not advertising to every single person the way that McDonald's and Taco Bell and Pepsi and Geico, those people go after a general consumer and they 
paper the nation with their advertising, right? And that's why the rates that voice actors are paid to work on those campaigns are commensurate with how often that advertising is both running and being viewed. But when someone is targeting their advertising to a very specific population, you can quote appropriately knowing that it's not being shown to every single person in the nation. Okay. And the other question that we get a lot (laughs) is... People want to know if they should create their own rate card and put it on their website. Good, bad. What do you think about that? I personally do not put a rate card on my website for the same reason that I do not send clients to the GVA rate guide. Because it's too complicated for the various average people to understand when they see all of the things that do not apply to their industry. Right? So if someone is coming to my website and they end up on... Um, potentially hiring me for telephony and IVR, I don't want them to see how much I charge for a piece of, you know, paid pre-roll advertising because they might get that number into their head and think that I'm super, super expensive or something like that. A lot of times it's more just about like telling the stories that you want to tell or giving the information that you want to give because you want to be able to curate that experience for the type of client that they are. I personally keep my own rate card and I update it every year. I have it saved in my Dropbox. And if a client asks me if I have a rate card, and most of the time it's clients that work in kind of a volume environment. Um, I think the the most requests that I've gotten for a rate card have been from political clients. So the types of clients who you know, maybe need to move very quickly during an election cycle. They want to use the same kind of stable of voices like over and over again. And they don't want to come to you for a quote for every single project when all of the projects have the same kind of specs, the same kind of needs. So I personally believe that if a client asks you for a rate card, that's usually a good sign that they want to use you a lot and they want to just have your rates like easily at a glance, ready to go. So what I've done is I've taken kind of the information from the GVA rate guide and the information from the gravy for the brain rate guide. I've synthesized those into my rates, what I like to charge, what I want my minimums to be, what I want my kind of, you know, disclosures to be of what is included, what isn't included. I have that all on a very simple to read, easy PDF. And the only category where I have quoted per project is national spots, national paid advertising, national spots on television. I don't put any rates down on paper because I really want to be able to ask enough follow-up questions to know that I'm giving you an accurate quote for that type of job. But everything else is pretty templated. E-learning, telephony, imaging, political spots, local advertising, radio, that kinds of stuff. I I don't need to flex, you know, here or there, wherever. Um, So I you know, keep it in my Dropbox. If a client requests it, I'm happy to send it to them. I do not proactively offer to send it out and I do not publish it on my website. Okay, perfect. That answers the question. And, uh, so, hi, it's nice to see, it's nice to see you and talk to you, Maria. Um, so my question is, when a client asks for a quote, what this is, I mean, clearly we are just dumping loads of information on people, but this is a great segue. When people, when clients ask for a, clo- a quote, a lot of times people freeze in their tracks. 
and they're like, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, we've got this gravy for the brain. Yes, we've got the the GVAA rate guide, but uh, you know, maybe I'm newer to the industry, or maybe I haven't worked in that particular genre before, and I kind of freeze up. Where do you tell people to start? Well, I think it's really helpful if you think about the different genres that you are working in and understanding what your pick up the mic fee is for those genres, meaning what is the minimum amount of money you would want to be paid to get out of bed and get in your booth to record a project in that particular genre. And I think it's important to have a pick up the mic fee that is different by genre because the rates for the genres can be so wildly divergent. So for instance, when it comes to, you know, telephone systems and any kind of like IVR telephone prompts, I really don't want to be taking on projects that are less than $200. That's kind of my pick up the mic fee, my minimum. So if a client comes to me and is like, oh, we're looking for a voice for our telephone system, we have a few prompts, you know, I might share, great, you know, I'd be happy to take a look at the script and I can firm up a quote, but you know, my minimum rate for telephony is, is $200. When I think about explainer videos, I might set my minimum rate at like $350 or $450 and know that when people come to me, that's how much I want to make. Having those pick up the mic fees in the back of your mind, I think can be very empowering they can help you realize that not every job is a good job or a right job, right? We have a we have a finite number of hours in the day to voice projects, to run our business, to make ourselves lunch and be a human being, right? So we want to make sure that we are using our time wisely and we're being compensated in a way that makes us feel good about the work that we're putting out into the world. The rates can change and evolve over time as your career changes and evolves over time. And they can be different as you move through the different genres that you choose to work in. But I think it's a great place to start to just say, these are the minimum rates that I would like to make in any particular genre so that I know when a client comes to me, if we're close, then I can negotiate and maybe find a place where we can arrive on where we both feel good. But if we're wildly divergent, then maybe this is, I say, you know, thank you so much for reaching out to me. It seems like we're not a great fit for each other. I wish you all the best on your project. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I think one of the things now, you know, not unlike this podcast or Facebook groups or uh, YouTube videos and different posts, uh, you know, on different social media platforms, it feels like there are a lot of industry pros who are really trying not only just to, I'm going to put the word educate out there. But like A.B. said earlier, build up your confidence, you know, and and help you get to that place. And if you have a question, you know, I'm not sure what I should charge for this. There's no shame in in reaching out and asking some colleagues, asking some peers. I'm not really sure where to start with this. Maybe I haven't worked in this genre before or where I'm going to go next is. I'm new. You know, I'm new to the industry. And that's that's something that we're hearing a lot, definitely in, in our own Facebook group. Do you do you have an opinion on whether newer talent should charge different rates than working talent? No, I don't think newer talent should charge different rates than working talent, but I think it's important to recognize that some working talents may charge more than what newer talents wish to charge for their work. I do not think that you should, um, I don't think you should undersell your value just because you are newer to the industry. But I do think that as you become more veteran or experienced in the industry, you can increase your rates to account for the experience and breadth and depth of 
work that you bring to a particular project. Um, I don't think that if we think about it from the client side, right? So if somebody is looking to hire a lawyer, let's say, let's use another, like pick a different like genre to use as an example. And they're asking lawyers like what their billable hour rates are. Let's say you were looking for a lawyer because you were in a car accident. And one lawyer says, uh, you know, my billable hours are $350 per hour. That includes, you know, conversations, note taking. If we're in court together, it's a flat fee. And the other lawyer says, well, I'm kind of new at this. So I charge $150. Who are you going to hire? You're going to hire the person just because the cost is lower? Or are you going to choose the person that you think is right for the job? So I think you should price your rates based on what you think is appropriate for your work. I don't think you should apologize for being new, but I also don't think that you should be hanging your shingle and starting your business and marketing yourself until you're ready to do so. So if you're in a position where you are newer to the industry and you don't feel good charging the rates that everyone else is kind of blessed as industry standards, then my question is, why do you feel that way? Do you feel that way because you're not ready? Do you need more coaching? Do you need more work? Do you need to understand how to run a small business better? Are you actually ready to be open for business? Or is this a confidence issue? And I wouldn't misinterpret confidence for lack of experience. You could be experienced and ready to go, but missing confidence. And in that case, get yourself an accountability group. Find three or four talents that are at similar stages of the journey that are around the same experience level and root each other on, encourage each other to charge what you're worth, encourage each other to run your businesses like the businesses they are, thinking like a business instead of just thinking like a performer or an actor, and use those people as your sounding board. But no, I do not support the idea that if you're newer to the business, you should be charging less for your work because it's somehow not as good as the people who have been in the business longer. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Know. A client has no idea how long you've been in this business unless you tell them. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are people, there are people who, you know, reach out to an agent with their first demo and book a national spot the next week because they just happen to have the right voice and be in the right place at the right time. The agent isn't going to say to the client, oh, this is actually a new person on my roster. So you get a 50% discount. It's not how the world works. So I heard some really great advice when I first started out in the industry, and it was that when you reach a point, especially with corporate work, um, where you're doing, you, you feel like you're too busy, that's when you know you need to raise your rates a little bit. And then slowly, you know, some of the lower paying work drops off and more, you, you pick up more higher paying work. And then you reach a point where you realize you need to. And the guy said that over time, he had raised his rates a little bit, raised his rates a little bit, and and then getting higher and higher uh, quality clients over time. And I thought that was a really interesting strategy. Um, and I found there's times when I need to pull back a little bit and and make my rates a little bit, not below industry standard, but there's a range for a reason, right? And we can work within that range to work with what works best for us at the time. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the way that I've kind of framed it is that I outgrow clients. And for me, it's usually about the amount of work that is required and or how needy that client is compared to how much they pay, right? So I have some clients who are probably at the, you know, lower end of what I charge when I'm, you know, bidding on new opportunities in the open market, like on an online casting site where you have to put in your rate quote, or when people are reaching out to me cold and asking for 
an audition and a quote, you know, I'm, I'm charging perhaps a, a higher market rate that I have established over time compared to what this existing client is paying. Um, but the clients that I've kept that are in a slightly lower rate bracket are the ones that are the easiest to service. They're the ones that do not have expectations of immediate turnaround. They're the ones that send me scripts that are formatted well and don't have a lot of typos and don't require a lot of back and forth from me to ask questions in order to be able to do my job well. They are the ones that typically do not come back after the fact and have hundreds and hundreds of pickups that all could have been addressed if somebody had read the script out loud ahead of time before they gave it to me or any number of things. But as my career has grown, as the demand for my time has grown, and as I've become busier with larger accounts and have had, you know, larger opportunities presented to me through my management team and my representation um, that I want to be available for and have the opportunity for scheduling and auditioning, you know, that kind of work. Um, the clients that I have outgrown are the ones that were really, really needy and also really, really cheap. And most of the time, I would just let them know that, you know, based on the new work that I've acquired as my business has grown, they just don't fit into my schedule anymore. And what I try to do is introduce them to another talent who maybe is interested in that opportunity. So I might reach out to, you know, people who I've met at conferences and classes or people who have coached with me who are maybe a little bit earlier in their journey and are still really interested in opportunities to, you know, cut their teeth and get experience. I would never, I would never give like a bad, like non-paying client to someone. But if this is a client that just happens to have a budget that is what it is, and there just isn't any room and they're going to find someone to do the job, I will try and find them the next person to do the job. If they have been an unmitigated nightmare to me, then I'll just say like, Hey, I'm so sorry. I'm not able to service you anymore. Wishing you all the best and just kind of close the chapter there. I think that <laughs> it's very diplomatic of you. I like that. Um, and that leads into my final question for you. Uh, and it's a little broad, but I think you can, you're very articulate. So I think you can kind of give a little bit of um, guidance for folks. What is a, a an appropriate way to begin negotiations? You know, a lot of people, again, not only may be hesitant when they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be too high or too low or how I should quote this. But then maybe we're at that confident place and we go, it needs to be $500 for me to pick up the microphone. But if they come back and they're like, we're at $350, um, what is just, again, kind of maybe a couple examples of how talent can reach back out and go, oh, can we try and meet in the middle? Like, what is a, an appropriate, again, diplomatic way to start that conversation? Yeah. So I try to include language whenever I'm providing a quote. I always start by asking a client what their budget is, if they have a budget or a budget range in mind. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. So in the instances where they don't and they say, we don't have a specific budget in mind, we're happy to review your quote. What I do is I put the quote together. I try to explain in very, very brief and simplistic terms how I arrived at the quote. So does the quote include uh, you know, live session direction? Does the quote include things like file splitting for, you know, e-learning or corporate narration? Does the quote include any rounds of pickups or expectation of pickups? So I try to say, here is the rate. The rate includes this. And then I use some kind of wrap-up language that lets them know that I'm open to discussion from that point. So let me know if this works for you or here's what I'm thinking. Let me know if this lines up with your expectations. So basically sharing with them that it's not just an open and shut case on this one number. 
and I am open to discussing it with them. So let's say I give a client a quote for $500, like your example, and I share what the $500 includes, and they come back and say, yeah, we were really hoping to keep it you know, around $350. The first thing I'm thinking in my head is, I asked you if you had a budget, and you told me no, and I gave you a number, and then you gave me a number, which means you had a budget, which always happens. But I would say, okay, you know, so you're at $350, I'm at $500. I'd say, you know, 350 is a little bit lower than I'd be able to take this work on for, but could we meet at 400, right? So then I'm showing that I'm willing to be flexible. I'm still getting a rate that feels fair and appropriate and it was, is within the realm of uh, standard for that particular project. I think it becomes really difficult when you quote, you know, let's say a, an e-learning client came to you. And it's, you know, a relatively long course and you've quoted something like $1,500 and they're like, oh, we have a budget of $300. And it's like, well, you know, you can find a way to diplomatically say like, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, for professional voiceover services that include, you know, editing and pickups and being able to provide you with the services that you're asking for, $300 is not going to get it done. And it sounds like we're kind of far apart. So I think it's okay to recognize that sometimes you're just not the right fit for each other or not the right fit for um, the project. Also, I think it's okay to recognize that sometimes people come out into the marketplace looking for professional voiceover services, either having never done it before or not having any sort of baseline. And they get a number in their head of what they think is like, well, I would do it for about $300. And they have no idea kind of where we're coming from or what our rates are based in. So I think you can pick your battles, you know, recognize when there is room between you to either explain more thoroughly how you got to your rate and why you charge what you charge and the value of what you bring to the table or recognize that their expectations are leading them down a path towards using a site like Fiverr or other places where, again, the speed and the price are the most important thing to the client. Um, so, you know, you can either be running a, a more traditional kind of retail business where you make your money through the volume of projects you do. Again, that like 10 projects for $100 versus one project for $1,000. If you are choosing to run your business in a more retail widget kind of way where you make your weekly, monthly nut by doing as many projects as possible, that's totally your choice. It is a free market economy. If you want to do those 10 jobs to make that $1,000 because that's how you're finding success, that is totally fine and that is totally valid. That is not the way that I have built my career. I'm going after you know fewer opportunities that pay the rates that I'm asking for. Um, and that's the way that I've chosen to structure my business. So when you're in those moments of negotiation and the client comes back, I think just evaluate how far apart you are. Can you make a second offering that still feels good to you, still feels like you're being compensated fairly for what you're bringing to the table and the client will be satisfied? If you see the distance and you're like, I don't think that there's a second offering that I can make that is going to help them come up then I think it's just about your time. Do you want to spend more time trying to educate this client and bring them into the fold? Or do you want them to just go off and find someone who's going to do the job for the rate that they're offering, you know, potentially without knowing how deeply undercutting that person is taking a job for, for what could be, you know, on offer. 
um, we can't we can't save the world and we can't fix rates. We live in a we live in a free market economy and price fixing is illegal. So we can't say that there are you know firm standard rates in place for a particular thing. Um, so at that point, you just have to judge: is it is it worth your time and energy? Do you believe that that partic- that particular client has an enormous amount of potential for you and your business? Have they shared with you that there's a lot of opportunity? Um, and do you think that you can coax them into a rate that feels better for your time and your structure? Or are you too far apart and just let them know that ultimately the two of you are not well-matched to do business together? Okay. Before we wrap things up, I've got one, I've got one challenging question from our audience. Um, Sixta Morell asked, if you negotiate a rate for certain usage... Now, the ad has been recorded, it's running, the client comes back to ask to change the usage for something larger, but isn't meeting you at the rate that you asked for the new usage, You've gone back and forth a few times, and then you get silence on their end. How do you proceed when the ad's already running and there's no amendment on that second rate? Yeah, so if the client is using it for usage that you have not agreed to um, in principle for the compensation for that, then at that point you need to engage a lawyer and you need to have someone send them either a cease and desist and say, uh, you know, the, the way that you're using it was not what was agreed to. And the voice actor has not been compensated for um, the usage that's currently being used. Um, and therefore they need to cease running the ad um, for that particular usage until payment is made. Um or you need to just continue to follow up and just send them an invoice and say, you know, hey, I've noticed that this spot is running in, you know, this particular usage. We had discussed a rate but hadn't arrived at an agreement. Um, since I've noticed that it's already running, I'm assuming that you've accepted my latest uh, proposal. So here's an invoice for that number. Um, I think the the way that you react and behave should be colored by the experience that you have with that client. Is this a client that you've done a lot of work with? Is this a client that you believe there's a lot of potential to continue doing work with? How incendiary you get, how nuclear you go should be colored by how much you want to work with this client in the future. If this is the kind of client that has jerked you around a lot and is constantly like nickel and diming you over every rate, then go nuclear and get your money and just say, look, this is the last time we're together. You owe me money and you need to pay me for what we're doing together. And if they, you know, bristle at that, then you can just let them know that the next communication that you're going to get from them is going to be from your lawyer. And I know that's really, really scary um, and difficult to, you know, potentially like handle and, and take on board, but that might be what you need to do. Um, I had a client that uh, I negotiated a specific usage for specific markets. And then I had people and friends contacting me and telling me like, oh, I saw your X spot, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because it definitely was not supposed to be airing in your market. Um, so I went back to the client and I was like, Hey, so we had agreed on this, this, and this, but I understand from colleagues that it may be airing in these markets, this, this, and this. And it was not in that case, it was not malfeasance. They weren't trying to screw me over. They weren't trying to invalidate the agreement that we made. It was ignorance. And the person who was choosing different things to buy media 
didn't know that the producer and I had a very specific agreement around which markets we had agreed to for the rate I paid. So in that case, they just apologized and said, send us an invoice for the difference. Um, so I think all I think it's always good to assume best intentions first and just say that for the majority of clients, they're not actively trying to get something for nothing. They're not actively trying to screw us over. Every once in a while, you run into someone who is. They are out there. I'm not going to say that they're not out there. They are. There are people who are definitely trying to take advantage of talents. And it happens in every kind of creative community, whether it's graphic designers, photographers, actors, singers, you name it. Somebody will always try to take advantage of an artist who they think you know is, is available for any kind of job, any kind of payment because they're desperate. But most of the time, things are happening and moving very quickly. And there's a lot of different people involved in these different situations. So the person who works on the media buying team may not have been a part of the producing team that was on the session with you or on the email trails with you where you did all of the negotiations. And then things happen where like, you know, a spot gets added to a brand's, you know, Google Drive. And they're like, oh, we ran this commercial like a year and a half ago. Why don't we start running that again to increase our sales? And the person that you worked with no longer works at that company. The person who finds it on the Google Drive has no idea who you are because your name's not on the file anywhere. And they just start running it. And then your dad calls you and it's like, oh, I just saw your bank spot. And you're like, I don't have any bank spots running. And then, you know, you reach out and you figure it out and you realize it wasn't because they were trying to screw you over. It's just because somebody literally did not know that they needed to pay the voice actor again to start running the ad again. So I think approach the situation based on the facts that you have, what you know, but if someone is using your voice actively in a medium or market or way that you have not materially agreed to or been compensated for, try the strongly worded letter yourself. And then if you are not getting anywhere, then bring in the big guns. Absolutely. I love it. You've and isn't it the, the just a best practice for life to assume best intent first, but don't be afraid to use the big guns if you need them, right? Um, I, Maria, thank you so much. We, I can't believe we've already made it to an hour, and I have had so much fun looking through the list of all the people who are in the, um, I, I want to call it a room, but I don't know what they call it on LinkedIn. It's not really a room, but we love you all. We're going to figure out some way we can chat because this did not work today with chatting and we apologize for that, but we will figure something out. In the meantime, before you go, Maria, we like to ask our guests three just for fun questions, a little James Lipton style. So what singer, band or composer music are you enjoying right now? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I... I've, to be honest, I've been listening to the new Billie Eilish song, What Was I Made For, that was on the Barbie soundtrack on repeat, <laughs> which is kind of like very dark and sad. <laughs> so I don't know if that's just a reflection of me just like feeling sad that like summer is coming to an end and it's going to start snowing in Buffalo soon. Maybe it's an indication of where my mood is going and I need to increase my uh, vitamin D uh intake but my um my go-to uh comfort music as a child of the 80s and 90s i love to listen to the cranberries on repeat oh, love the cranberries love them love them um okay so any podcasts that you can recommend that you've been listening to lately yeah, so I, my husband and I love listening to comedy uh, podcasts um, with a lot of comics and improvisers and things like that. 
And uh, one podcast that I really, really love is called The Dollop. And it's an American history podcast. Uh, it's hosted by Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds. Um, and Dave basically takes a uh, a story from the crevice of American history, the couch cushions, the 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 change under your car seat of American history. So stories that have been long forgotten or um, are just like sidecars to other parts of history. And he shares the story to Gareth, who has never heard the story, who's kind of like reacting and improvising in real time. And I think they just had their either 500th or 600th episode. And it is a whole recap on the history of Elon Musk. So if wow. you are amused by all the things happening on Twitter and with Starlink and Tesla and all of those things, and you've always wanted to know what makes that guy tick, um, they're taking a deep dive into his history. So it's a very funny podcast. You can jump in anywhere. Um, some of my favorite episodes, they have an episode called The New Jersey Shark Attacks when there were just a whole ton of sharks living in the creeks and rivers and streams of New Jersey. Um, there's an article, there's a podcast episode called the hippo bill um, where in the 1800s, somebody was trying to bring hippos over to be a competitor to cow and pig farming um, agriculture for meat production in the U S um, there's an episode Ew. on a, a, a tickling controversy, which was very funny. Um, so lots of great opportunities to just uh, to jump in and listen to the stories from the crevices of American history. I love it. That that's going on my to do list, my listen list. All right. Last question and the most important. What is your favorite dessert? Oh, New York style cherry cheesecake where you've got mm -hmm. a nice buttery graham cracker bottom cheesecake covered with like the cheriest cherry pie filling on top oh. yeah that that'll just that'll take me into the sunset on any day oh man sounds like with it. a lactate now that <laughs> all I'm right in well 40s, with a lactate. Wow. okay this was incredible thanks everyone for joining us thanks for hanging with us on our new platform and we will continue to work out the kinks, but we appreciate your support. I hope you learned a lot. If you are listening to our podcast, feel free to join us every Thursday live, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, meanwhile, we're on LinkedIn, so if you're not connected with us, please do so. Um, and also join the VO Booth Besties Facebook group. If you have missed an episode in the past, you can always catch the recording later on our website, boothbesties.com or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. We would love it. Also, when you go listen, if you would leave us a review, uh, those reviews help us reach more listeners who are looking for great voiceover content. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Over to you, JT. Thank you. And once again, make sure you're signed up for our VO Booth Besties newsletter so you know what's coming up in the week ahead. And we're exceptionally excited to share with you a new opportunity for our Bestie community a weekly workout group in the month of October with the incredible Ashley Adder Adler. There is more info to come, so make sure you are on the newsletter to get that info. Yes, and also every Monday we're offering an accountability group at 10 a.m. Pacific time and 1 p.m. Eastern time hosted by Nevin Stoltz, as well as a second group at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern headed up by Jess Matheson. It's a great place you can set goals and work through them together. And next week, we'll be joined by Rodney Turner, who is an audiobook coach and guru, and we are excited to 
talk to him. So thanks everybody for being here. We'll tie it all up and have a great rest of your day. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of VO Booth Besties. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Well, pretty much anywhere they're playing podcasts. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook so we can keep the conversation going. Video Booth Besties. Yeah, it's a thing. thing.